This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is uh, Henry Kim. I'm a senior researcher uh, and the Asia coordinator at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. I am here today with Professor Paul uh, Midford. Paul is one of the leading scholars internationally on Japan's foreign policy and heads the Japan program at the Norwegian University of Science and uh, Technology. We are here today to talk about Paul's new book, Overcoming Isolationism, Japan's Leadership in East Asian Security Multilateralism. Um, Paul's book asks a really important but under-examined question. Why did Japan, after the end of the Cold War, move out of its isolation and started cooperating more actively with its neighbors about security? And to me, the reading this book really helped me uh, debunk some myths, uh, because I must admit, I've had an image of Japan as a sort of very passive foreign policy actor, largely following the lead of the United States. But I think that in this book, Paul really demonstrates that this is not true. Japan has become more and more active in uh, the post-Cold War uh, period. So, uh, Paul, just to start, if you could tell us a little bit about how Japan's foreign policy changed, uh, that, would be, that would be great. If you compare Japan's security policy during the Cold War to its uh, post-Cold War policies, what are sort of the main differences that, uh, that you see? Okay. Well, uh, as the title of my book suggests, uh, the cold, uh, during the Cold War, Japan engaged in uh, what I call security isolationism. It avoided security ties with all other nations, with the uh, U.S., the United States as a sole exception. Now, one notable uh, example of this is that when Japan joined the U.S. Navy's multilateral uh, Rim of the Pacific or RIMPAC uh, annual uh, naval exercises at the beginning of the 1980s, it scrupulously avoided uh, contacts with, with any other participating navies except for the U.S. Navy. So for Japan, RIMPAC was a bilateral naval exercise with the U.S. in close, in close proximity to a multilateral exercise. Japan also opposed uh, secu regional security multilateralism. Uh, it pursued security isolationism as a way to reassure uh, East Asian uh, states that Japan would not return to its pre-1945 expansionism. So Japan effectively self-contained itself within the uh, twin frameworks of its war-renouncing constitution and the U.S.-Japan alliance. And um, it, after the Cold War, um, or at the end of the Cold War, things uh, began to change because uh, um, the Soviet Union and the U.S. were reducing their regional military presence. At the same time, Japan, uh, the Japan-U.S. bilateral economic tensions were worsening, and Japan was looming large as the region's uh, economic hegemon with an economy larger than the rest of East and South Asia combined. So Japan had used its security isolation in combination with this, including this kind of self-containment within its war-renouncing constitution and the U.S. alliance to become a, um, as a way to reassure its um, neighbors. So it was, uh, this was effectively a reassurance strategy towards Asia. But with the end of the Cold War, it became clear that Japan had um, 
outgrown these self-containment structures and needed to expand its regional and global security uh, role in response to US pressure and an apparent looming uh, security vacuum in the region. So uh, in a sense, I mean, uh, this was part of a reassurance strategy, right? To, to reassure yeah. uh, other countries of Japan's sort of benign intentions. Um, were there other factors you would say that, that sort of informed this uh, policy shift? Um, well, uh, besides the kind of changing of the balance of power at the end of the Cold War, um, the decline of the United States and the Soviet Union, other factors or other motivations Japan had were um, uh, kind of a desire to kind of control or manage uh, its alliance with the US. Uh, the, the, what's uh, often talked about is a so-called alliance security dilemma, you know, that when you're, whenever one state is in alliance with another, you have to worry about uh, the possibility of being abandoned by your ally or being entrapped by your ally. And Japan also tried to use regional security multilateralism that it began to embrace at the end of the Cold War. Um, as a way to manage its uh, U.S. ally. And as time went on, it also found regional security multilateralism to be useful to provide certain kind of what you might call utilities, security utilities, things that the Japan couldn't do by itself and really couldn't do with the U.S. Uh, bilaterally, such as uh, combating uh, piracy regionally or cooperating with countries in the region to strengthen uh, responses to uh, natural disasters and uh, humanitarian crises. So the, these are some of the things that Japan has also tried to pursue since it really shifted from security isolationism to what I could call in the post-Cold War era security engagement, uh, primarily through promoting regional security multilateralism, something it opposed during the Cold War, but also uh, engaging more bilaterally with other countries in the region like Australia, India, uh, states of Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Philippines, etc. But this need for reassurance, maybe you could say a little bit more about it, because I mean, um, I know historically, of course, um, I mean, Japan has had sort of a bad reputation for, for obvious uh, reasons, which uh, perhaps speaks to the, to, the, to the need for a reassurance uh, strategy, right? Yes. Well, after, simply put, I mean, after World War II, uh, uh, Japan appeared to be a, um, a country that was very aggressive or was kind of predisposed towards militarism and um, being aggressive. That was a widespread impression. The uh, American uh, General MacArthur and many officials in the U.S. occupation of Japan had that image of Japan. Uh, countries that today have very close uh, security ties with uh, uh, Japan, like Australia, uh, had that image uh, in the Philippines too. In fact, Australia was against uh, a, a so-called Pacific Pact that was proposed in the early 1950s, including Japan, because it included Japan. And they were even said they were more worried about Japan at that time than they were about the Soviet Union or uh, China. And this is, I'm talking about the early uh, 1950s here. So Japan sort of created uh, through its pre-war expansionism, this image, and it's been trying gradually since the end of the or uh, during the Cold War to kind of overcome that through this security isolationism, maintaining a very low military posture, uh, maintaining its uh, war-renouncing constitution and um, its alliance with the U United States. Um, in addition to some of the sort of broad structural 
um, changes that you mentioned, the, the end of the Cold War and the turn towards uh, unipolarity in the international system. You also draw attention to what you call foreign policy entrepreneurs uh, in your book. Um, and uh, as far as I can understand, these are people with, with sort of new ideas to also, to also manage to get their ideas translated into actual policy. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about these people, who they were and, and how they got their policies um, uh, implemented. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the key entrepreneurs that I identify in the book most, uh, I mean, especially Sato Yukio, who was the brains behind the so-called Nakayama proposal, which is really uh, the, the heart of the pivot from security isolationism towards security engagement. Um, uh, he um, had one, uh, he and many other uh, policy entrepreneurs had one foot in the policy think tank world, in the academic world, and uh, uh, one foot in the, uh, uh, in government. Specifically, uh, he uh, had, at, at the time of the Nakayama proposal, he was head of policy planning at Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He had uh, before that studied in the UK and had been a researcher at uh, the London-based Institute of Strategic and International Studies, ISS. He also had close ties with leading academics at the ASEAN Institutes of Strategic and International Studies. So he was able to kind of leverage these contacts between uh, the academic world and policymaking to kind of um, uh, absorb and channel and kind of um, uh, ref refine some new ideas about cooperative and um, cooperative security and common security, uh, these new forms of security multilateralism that have really begun in Europe in the 1970s and were beginning to be, uh, become influential in East Asia in, in the early 1990s. So he played a big role along with some others and sort of move, changing the thinking uh, in the foreign ministry and in Japan's, among Japan's elites. Um, now others like uh, Nishihara Masashi uh, were um, academics with close ties to policymakers. Then there's, uh, so that's maybe a second group. And then the third group were politicians with deep expertise and interest. Uh, in these issues. So former Prime Minister Miyazawa Kiichi and also Kon former Foreign Minister Kono Yohei are uh, leading examples in this group. Um, and all these uh, entrepreneurs acted to transmit these new ideas about common and cooperative forms of security multilateralism. And they were motivated by a belief that the rapidly changing security environment uh, at the end of the Cold War required Japan to undergo a major rethink of its traditional approaches to security and look for new kind of policy instruments. One of the things that really impressed me while reading your book is the broad range of sources you've consulted here, including interviews with a lot of people who were intimately involved with all of this and, and also a, a range of declassified documents. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about these sources and, and in general, perhaps about the making of the book? You've been uh, working on this for, a, for quite a while, haven't you? Yes, it's, it's kind of uh, occurred at the intersection of several other projects. It really begins um, in the most meaningful sense, my, my first full day in Japan and uh, in my life in July 1991, I had an appointment at the foreign ministry. I went to the foreign ministry and met a, um, a uh, uh, diplomat in, who specialized in security issues, a former uh, member of Japan's armed forces, the SDF, and he uh, proclaimed to me that Japan had just made its first post-war sec uh, international security initiative and handed me a copy of the Nakayama proposal uh, that was given like two days earlier. And that really uh, 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 got me interested in the Nakayama proposal. 
and uh, also this uh, issue of reassurance because Nakayama is very explicit in this proposal about saying you should establish a regional multilateral security forum and one topic should be East other countries' concerns about Japan playing a larger security role. So that's sort of where it began and over the course of uh, related work to uh, related to my doctoral dissertation at Columbia University and other projects, I've been interviewing people on this topic since the early 1990s. So one major source uh, for this book are, are many interviews over many years with many Japanese diplomats. I interviewed Sato maybe seven, eight times. Um, and uh, some other top officials. I interviewed Prime Minister Miyazawa, former Prime Minister Miyazawa in 2005. Um, and then uh, in 2010, when I had my first sabbatical and I was gonna write up this book, I uh, uh, made the mistake or, or, or um, did the, um, the right thing. And I put in a lot of freedom of information requests uh, to the foreign ministry and to the cabinet office under the prime minister in Japan when I was there. And I also went to the diplomatic archives and found some documents there, but the freedom of information requests I put in resulted in a treasure trove of documents. I ended up with like over a thousand pages of documents in Japanese, various cables and, and policy planning documents, et cetera. And that was good, except that there was no way I was gonna get through that in my first sabbatical. So that delayed my book until my last sabbatical, which was 2016 to 20 through 2017, when I finally processed all that and wrote up the book. But it does, I, I do think it does have a, a rich uh, variety of sources. I mean, of course, secondary uh, scientific academic literature, plus you know, these uh, original um, declassified documents and, and interviews. Just as a side note, for as someone working on Chinese foreign policy, I could just dream about having access to, to um, that sort of documentation. Um, um, actually, but, could I just interrupt there? Because you I just remind me of a really important point, which is I was really lucky because when I was putting in this freedom of information requests, the Democratic Party of Japan was in power and they were very open and transparent. And I think that's why I got far more documents than I expected. And recently it's been reported that the Abe administration became much more restrictive. And there was even a case of a document from the 1950s that had been previously declassified. Someone requ requested it again and it came back with almost totally redacted. So I would, my timing, I was really lucky that I, I put in the request when I did. If I put them in today, I wouldn't have gotten nearly as much. So under a different government, it would have been, uh, would have been different. Now, I want to uh, discuss uh, some of the implications uh, that this book could have for the future of East Asia, because um, again, like this is a really, really good book on, you know, Japanese foreign policy between uh, 1990 and the present. Um, but, but it also has important implications for, for current debates uh, about, um, you know, the future of, of East Asia. Uh, and just to set the scene a little bit to our listeners, I would like to highlight, and you, you highlight this in the book too, uh, of course, that the East Asia that we're seeing today is fundamentally different from the East Asia of 1991, when the Cold War ended. Um, and the most important difference, obviously, is the massive power shift that has happened in the region with the rise of uh, China. Um, I think you highlight this, but in the early 1990s, uh, Japan was the second largest economy in the world, uh, and it was larger than all of the East Asian uh, economies combined, including China. Um, Chinese military power at the time was very limited. It had very, very limited um, power projection capability, particularly in the maritime uh, realm. And then if you fast forward 30 years, uh, this picture is 
is very different, of course. China is uh, now uh, larger than all of the East Asian economies uh, combined. So Japan and, and China has sort of switched place, places. Um, the military pro uh, power projection capabilities of China uh, have also increased um, massively, uh, of course. And then, I mean, given this shift, um, one may ask whether reassurance, which you sort of identify as uh, the core rationale of Japan's uh, shifting security policy, whether it's as important now as it was in the uh, past. Um, now, many countries in East Asia identify China as their sort of most important um, security challenge, not necessarily because they um, misregard Chinese intentions, uh, but simply because of the massive increase in Chinese capabilities. So does Japan really need to reassure its neighbors uh, now? Um, does it need to reassure China? I mean, China was an important target of the reassurance policy, obviously, also um, in the past. Yeah. Um, yes, that's a good question. And uh, my concluding chapter, I actually have a whole section entitled, Does Reassurance Still Matter? And my argument is, it matters less than it used to but it still matters. Um, first, um, I would argue it matters less because Japan's reassurance strategy, particularly through promoting regional security multilateralism has been successful. They have successfully reassured a lot of East Asian countries who had been leery of Japan before, particularly we can look at the Philippines and Vietnam that are now very much deepening their security cooperation with Japan. So that's one uh, kind of one answer, but uh, it is true that as the balance of power has shifted, um, that um, more states have become more concerned about China. Uh, but that doesn't automatically translate into lack of concern about Japan. And also when we think about kind of the shifting balance of, um, of threats and, uh, and, and power and which, um, and uh, you know, whose uh, uh, kind of reputation uh, Japan should be compared to, we shouldn't only think about the way other countries look at China versus uh, Japan versus China as a military power. We also need to think about how the countries of the region think about Japan versus the United States as a military power. Um, a, a sinologist in the United States, uh, Thomas Christensen, years ago kind of summarized this when he said that, uh, this was back in the 1990s, that uh, uh, Chinese uh, observers seemed genuinely thankful that um, American aircraft carriers and Marines replaced Japanese aircraft carriers and Marines. So that the identity of the country providing, you know, uh, security in the region, even if it is in some sense in opposition to, to China, matters to China. Um, now, I think that the difference between the U.S. and uh, Japan today is much less because, again, Japan's reassurance strategy has been successful and maybe the U.S. As reputation has also taken a few hits recently. Um, so for those reasons, I, I would say that it does still matter. And I also think it matters for all states, actually, not just those who had the kind of reputation Japan was saddled with after World War II. I think this is sort of a, one of the bread and butter uh, purposes of diplomacy, which is reassuring others about your intentions and that you don't intend to threaten others. I guess South Korea would be an important example of this also, right? I mean, South Korea was very much uh, exposed to Japan's uh, Japanese mili uh, militarism during the uh, Second World War, right? And has had 
very strong sort of uh, objections to Japan uh, assuming a larger military role, despite the fact that they're both allied to the United States and, and uh, that the United States really wanted to, to cooperate more closely. Yes, when we look at Northeast Asia, certainly uh, Japanese uh, reassurance towards South Korea has not been very successful. I mean, they've made some progress in terms of security cooperation, but it's been very modest. So there is still a need for, uh, I would argue, uh, reassurance towards South Korea. And also regarding China, I mean, I, th I think we could argue that there is also Japan has some need to continue reassurance towards China, although um, uh, there are, of course, many skeptics who who uh, who question how sincere, uh, you know, Chinese concerns about Japanese rearmament are. Um, those are well taken. Nonetheless, you know, military to military cooperation, say in disaster relief operations, etc., can help to reassure and build a better image for Japan's military with China. And also Japan has had some unappreciated successes. So uh, China, for example, initially opposed Japan sending uh, its military to Cambodia for the, uh, to participate in UN peacekeeping in 1992-93. But by the time it was over, uh, China reversed its position and come out in favor of that, in part because uh, the Japanese contingent and the Ch uh, Chinese military were able to cooperate on the ground. Um, related to this, I wonder whether you think uh, the relative importance of balancing Chinese power has increased. Um, you do mention this as one motivation in the book, but, but as sort of less important than, than reassurance. But um, do you think that is shifting, that cooperating with other um, Asian states uh, and potentially, I mean, states outside Asia too, to balance Chinese power is sort of gaining prominence, uh, becoming more important uh, to Japan? Well, as a foreign policy goal, yes, it is. Um, but of course, I'm talking about Japan's, I'm focusing on Japan's uh, involvement in regional security multilateralism. And uh, balancing China has been a motivation in those contexts within the ASEAN regional forum and within the ASEAN defense ministers meeting plus dialogue partners that uh, involves defense ministers from, all, from those countries uh, in the region. But um, in that context, uh, it, it's, not, it's not the context for building like an explicit uh, or, or, or uh, even less than explicit counterbalancing coalition against China, such as the Quad that involves Japan, the US, Australia, and India might be. So um, Japan has been putting more importance on organizations like the Quad, which I would not call multilateralism, that's more an example of minilateralism, I would say. It's, it's more uh, uh, involves like-minded states, whereas the, um, the ARF, for example, in, includes China and Russia, and it's more of an unlike-minded forum. Uh, and, but even in that unlike-minded forum, counterbalancing China uh, can be important for Japan in terms of maybe isolating uh, China or preventing China from isolating Japan. So it can use that maybe to make gains or defensively to prevent China from making gains. So um, in that context, uh, uh, balancing China is important, but, but there are limits to what you're going to be able to do in, in that kind of context. So in essence, uh, it seems like you, you think that despite the shifts happening in the balance of power in East Asia, you see uh, a strong continuity nevertheless in Japan's uh, foreign policy. Um, could you say a little bit um, about the implications of this and, and what it, I mean, uh, holds for and implies for the future security, security environment of East Asia? 
Um, I, what it, the implication is, as I, I discussed in the book, is that uh, Japan has uh, been a consistent champion of regional security multilateralism. Uh, and I think I expect that to continue. And therefore, I expect to see regional security multilateralism uh, to be important uh, and to continue to develop. And I think it has an important role in helping to stabilize the region. It's a place where all the countries of the region can meet. Uh, among other things, the ARF is the only place outside of the UN International Forum, uh, political forum where North Korea uh, participates. So for that reason alone, it's pretty valuable, but, but also it's a place where, uh, you know, Japan and China and the US and these other countries can directly talk to each other. Uh, and so I, I argue that it has an important stabilizing role. It's also important for helping to keep the US in the region. Um, Japan's security multilateralism that helped to create the ADMM plus and the ARF have been uh, surprisingly successful in terms of helping to keep the US engaged in the region and, and prevent kind of US abandonment. Because as you know, officials in Washington tell me those meetings are sort of like one stop shopping, meaning that sec uh, the secretaries of state and defense can come out and meet all, all of their regional counterparts in one place. And so that is justification to draw them out of Washington and make the very long journey, long flight from Washington to, to Southeast Asia for these meetings. So uh, I, I expect that, uh, you know, these, uh, Japan's promotion of security multilateralism and security multilateral institutions in East Asia will play an important stabilizing role in helping uh, to maintain regional peace and security, particularly at a time when Sino-US tension is increasing. And we need, and there's a need for having kind of uh, mechanisms that can help to address, if not, uh, diffuse some of that tension, particularly in the re at the regional level. Okay, on that uh, slightly positive uh, note, uh, I think we'll have to uh, end. Um, for everyone who wants to explore this issue more in depth and learn more about Japan's foreign policy and uh, international relations in East Asia more generally, I strongly recommend reading Paul's book, uh, Overcoming Isolationism, Japan's Leadership in East Asian Security Multilateralism is available now. Uh, my name is Henry Keem, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.